This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The 2015 Toronto International Film Fest. Internal Monologue. And the Hellfire Club. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu at a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me. Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined. And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you backed the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or like a full metal nutball neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen in its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. Now in retail. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the world. The clattering of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the polite shushing from the beaver in the third row tell us we've entered a Canadian edition of the Cinema Hut, and indeed the most Canadian issue of the Cinema Hut, barring perhaps a film that takes place entirely in a snowbound pine forest, because this is Toronto International Film Festival Roundup 2015 with your correspondent and mine, the beloved Robin Laws, who once more has seen great movies so that we can in 12 to 18 months. Robin, what is the greatest movie that you saw that our listeners will also enjoy. Because as I looked at your roundup, I noticed there was an awful lot of movies that were deeply felt emotional studies. And as you know, we're all stunted child people here on the podcast. Hey, we have drama system. We, we can do uh, emotional drama now. So I'll, right. I'll briefly mention the other movies that I really love. But the of my three favorite films uh, this year, the one that I think will be uh, most relevant to the needs of viewers is... 
High Rise. Uh, this is Ben Wheatley's adaptation of the J.G. Ballard uh, cult novel of the same name. And so uh, this uh, is the second J.G. Ballard uh, film adaptation, along with uh, Crash. That, of course, is the actual Crash, the David Cronenberg Crash, not that horrible Paul Haggis thing that undeservedly won Oscars for being nonsense. But you but, said uh, Paul Haggis, and so therefore undeservedly is taken as red. Right. And uh, while... Crash is very Ballard. It's also very Cronenberg and very Toronto. And so High Rise, which is the uh, story of people in a brutalist 1975 uh, concrete apartment tower who gradually uh, spiral into madness and destruction uh, with the wider world uh, unaware of uh, their descent into basically Lord of the Flies in an apartment building with adults. So it's a it's a surreal satire. It fragments uh, just as the sanity of the uh, people involved fragments. It has uh, Tom Hiddleston as the lead character, who in uh, the novelistic tradition is a bit more of an observer and less of a character with uh, the sort of uh, agency that actors normally demand of their uh, protagonists. But it's a really uh, thrilling, crazy, satirical version of the novel that I think really captures the spirit of Ballard precisely because Wheatley is British, the screenwriter is British, the cast is British, and the social political context of all of the craziness is um, much more to the fore. So I think that even more than Crash, this really encapsulates uh, the spirit of Ballard, who kind of went from being a uh, more of a science fiction writer to more of a satirist as he uh, went along. This is a divisive film. A lot of critics uh, didn't like it because critics never like satire. They never like harsh things. But when many of the other more highly praised uh, films that uh, are more conventional are forgotten, uh, people, particularly people of our ilk, will still be watching Ben Wheatley's High Rise. Now, um, just before we go on, the sort of notion of high rise strikes me as very similar to sort of the assumed ground zero of a lot of J horror films that a building it has caused some sort of locus of evil in the past and that we're still dealing with the horrible psychic echoes of it. Do you think there's a Ballard to J horror connection or is it just that people who live in horrible concrete buildings uh, learn to hate and fear them because they're horrible concrete buildings. The similarity is that J-horror tends to use a lot of uh, sort of not just brutalist architecture, but kind of uh, abandoned and decrepit architecture. So it's, uh, uh, and I think it's the connection is in the framing and in the setting that this, uh, as the action opens in High Rise, it's a, a new building overlorded by the uh, architect who uh, lives on the uh, penthouse level with the garden on top, uh, played by Jeremy Irons is in a delightful uh, comic turn. Well, whenever Jeremy Irons is living in the penthouse, you know nothing can go wrong. Right, exactly. Especially when he's the architect who built the place. Right. And so nothing could possibly go wrong from uh, hubris or any anything like that. But yeah, I think the J-horror connection is in the uh, they're often also set in concrete spaces and they're about uh, internal madness becoming external. So uh, I don't know uh, to what extent that's a, a conscious influence rather than a parallel. I think, for example, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who is the uh, kind of granddaddy of J-horror, uh, out of necessity, 
started out setting a lot of his scenes in sort of ruined industrial areas that had become abandoned because they were a cheap place to shoot and they mm -hmm. looked interesting and they looked distinctive because normally uh, directors don't seek out really ugly, horrible looking real places to stage their action. And uh, so there's definitely a parallel. I don't know whether there's cause and effect, but uh, that's what, not what we're about here in uh, film no, uh, criticism. No, we can find a parallel and leave it at that. That's what art's all about. Speaking of art, what is the next uh, thing on, on the big list that you would recommend? Is there one of the, because the next two on your the best list are both, as I mentioned, uh, sort of more character pieces. Is there something that you can peel out? Well, I, I should quickly mention those, uh, yeah. just uh, for, for those who are also interested in character pieces before we stick to the more genre-oriented one. Oh, and given that the Food Hut is so popular, I think On is a natural. Right. So On is a Japanese film by a director named Naomi Kawase, and it's about a uh, guy who runs a pancake stall, this particular type of sort of sweet uh, treat pancake that you... Uh, it's like two little round pancakes with a layer of red sweet bean paste in between, and he doesn't seem to particularly enjoy making this or uh, serving his uh, his customers, even though the you know the cute uh, high schoolers kind of tease him and kind of like him better than he likes them. Uh, and an older uh, an elderly woman comes along and sort of presses herself upon him because she's always had the dream of working in a pancake place, making red bean paste. And he is very skeptical, yet she proves her case by uh, bringing some red bean paste and it's really great it's much better it's not only better than the horrible bought-in stuff that he buys by the tub but it's amazing and his customers think it's amazing and so it starts out sort of being kind of a food procedural uh, like uh, Tampopo or uh, Babette's Feast but then you uh, discover uh, what's going on in the uh, woman's past and why it is that she's so excited about possibly working for the public in this little food stall and it opens up and goes in another direction it happens late enough the film that i'm not going to specify exactly uh, what that development is but it's a really uh, beautiful sweet uh, film that is uh, uh, full of life but also has a, a sort of a serious tough core at the middle of it so uh, it's called on which is the japanese word for uh, the red sweet bean paste. Um, I would also really recommend uh, for those looking for just a, a drama, uh, Murmur of the Hearts, uh, somewhat annoyingly named uh, because there's a very famous film called Murmur of the Heart by Louis Mal, uh, and that's a weird Chinese habit of just grabbing pre-existing English language titles and sticking them on their other things. But anyway, apart from that, it's the story of how uh, a family has sort of been shattered and separated and the uh, adult brother lives on an island and the adult uh, uh, sister lives on the mainland and they haven't seen each other in many years. And then through uh, both flashbacks and they're sort of discovering where they are in their lives, you get a portrait of why their family disintegrated and what happened there. But it's just it's sort of a timeless a real life situation that is just really gorgeously rendered. And that's by uh, Sylvia Chang. Uh, this is very much a Taiwanese film in the Taiwanese style. She's from Taiwan. Traditionally, she's worked in Hong Kong and made movies that feel like Hong Kong movies. Uh, she was all over the festival uh, this year because she uh, not only uh, appears in an acting role in a film called The Tale of Three Cities in a supporting role, but she also appears in and uh, wrote the screenplay for the Johnny Toe movie, which maybe we'll uh, get to in a bit. So uh, those are my uh, recommendations for just uh, beautiful, sweet, wonderful, moving films that uh, don't have a whole ton to do with 
what we're all about here on this uh, podcast, unless, as I suggested, you're playing Drama System, in which case they're perfectly applicable. Speaking of Drama System, for those of you who like to turn to the back of the book and look at the blue teacher's notes, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, of course, one of the great uh, film uh, writing or filmmaking books of all time, is now a documentary. And that sounds like the sort of thing that you could watch pretty much endlessly and keep coming up with great ideas for gaming or especially great ideas, I assume, for Drama System. Is there one or two nuggets from this uh, giant uh, river of gold that you could pan out for the listener? This is the first film I saw out of 45, <laughs> and I was not taking notes, but it's definitely the kind of film that you uh, would want to, uh, if you watch it on video, that you want to hit pause and uh stop and listen to all of the various things that not only um so uh hitchcock Truffaut, for those who don't know is sort of the one of the most uh, famous film books of all time it's a series of interviews of alfred hitchcock by the french new wave director francois Truffaut, and thankfully the audio from all of those interviews still exists and is in great condition so it's used in the film uh, along with uh, gorgeous uh, clips from uh, not all, but m many of Hitchcock's films, and they've all been, uh, you know, restored and look beautiful. If you get a chance to see it on a big screen, it is actually really worth it, even though it's an archival documentary. And interspersed with that are commentaries from Scorsese and David Fincher and uh, uh, Richard Linklater and uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa and Olivier Sayas, and they're all uh, focusing a lot on Hitchcock's uh, storytelling. And, uh, for example, it goes into his famous description of the difference between surprise and suspense, but then Hitchcock explains that there are other times when you do want to surprise people. And, uh, of course that happens in Psycho and the incredible impact of Psycho is described by, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. So, uh, I don't, uh, have a, a nugget per se to extract from you. So I direct you uh, when this comes out, uh, humble listeners, uh, to seek it out because it is, uh, if you like Hamlet's hit points, if you like that sort of study of narrative, uh, this is a masterclass in narrative and, uh, something that you can apply to your, uh, jamming or adventure creation. And I also, uh, maybe this tells you more about me and where I'm at in my life right now, but I, as the first film of the festival, I actually found it enormously, moving too to see all of these uh, clips from these films that have meant so much to me over the years and to sort of reflect on the nature of uh, creativity and artistic pursuit and uh, what it is that we uh, will leave behind if you've uh, led a creative life and uh, certainly uh, Hitchcock has left behind an, an incredible legacy in this film by uh, Kent Jones who's the uh, head of the New York Film Festival uh, is a uh, a gift to people who care about narrative as well. Okay. Uh, from the general to the specific, South Africa seems like the kind of place that should be making about 8 million noirs a year. This is one of them. Endless River by Oliver Hermanus, or Hermanus. I don't know which it would be. Is there more to it than the word South African noir convey? Is there more neat stuff in there? Um, yeah. So basically that's a film about uh, a man who is uh, completely shattered uh, when his uh, wife and children are uh, killed in a brutal home invasion, and he uh, ends up deepening his uh, sort of otherwise kind of casual uh, acquaintance level uh, relationship with a uh, waitress who herself turns out to be uh, tied into the case in some way. And the uh, sort of memorable thing is not only that it's dealing with an incredible issue that's uh, really plagued South Africa, which is this sort of uh, wave of uh, horrific gang violence that is sort of the uh, un, 
uh, dealt with a reservoir of the uh, years of political oppression and it's the, the, the violence that was not quite redeemed out of the uh, nation by the Reconciliation Commission is still bubbling and it's about that. Um, but it's also uh, shot in a really interesting way and scored uh, to uh, remind you of sort of uh, 50s cinemascope film. So it has this enormous formal control to uh, go along with this uh, story of uh, not necessarily uh, doomed love, but uh, love with this cloud of doom uh, hanging over it. So it really uh, uh, recalls not only uh, sort of 40s noir, but sort of 50s Hollywood filmmaking with that sweep. And it's just gorgeously controlled and uh, uh, composed and is just a, a really great example of uh, the crime film as uh, great art. Okay, uh, from uh, noir to the absurd, which I guess are sort of right next to each other in the 40s and 50s, uh, we have Colin Farrell, but he's in a Greek movie, and they're, everyone's turning into animals. Is this got a Circe-type mythic uh, Aesopian feel to it, or is it just postmodern goofiness, or both? It's, it's more uh, Eugene Ionescu-style absurdism. So the premise here is that if you, as an adult, find yourself without a partner, uh, whether you've been uh, dumped by your wife, as the uh, sort of sad architect character played by uh, Colin Farrell uh, has, or even if you're uh, widowed, you uh, then have uh, 45 days uh, to find a new partner, or you will then be turned into uh, the animal of your choice. Oh, of your choice? Yeah, you get to pick. Well, that's not so bad. Yeah. I so thought it was just like the one that you knew, like your internal self was. You get to uh, select. So the, the title of the film is The Lobster, and that's because Colin Farrell's character, uh, if he doesn't find anyone, uh, decides that he will be turned into a lobster because they are very long-lived and... Uh, he, he admires the lobster, and uh, most people prefer to be dogs, which is why there's so many dogs in the world, the film explains. I would think that they would prefer to be turned into something that you don't eat as much. Well, that is a point made, I think, by the uh, John C. Riley, or possibly by the Ben Wishaw character, ah. that, uh, that deciding to be a really tasty animal perhaps is not... Uh, the best choice. Uh, but he's made his choice, and uh, what really, of course, he wants to remain human. So, uh, so this is a. Or Colin Farrell, as the case may be. Right. And so this is a, a, a sort of an odd satire that goes a lot into a lot of the detail of the mechanics of this resort that you get sent to to meet another partner and uh, the weird rituals of that. And uh, so basically, it's a, it's a absurdist satire about the limits that we place in ourselves and the uh, odd. Uh, rules that uh, societies create in order to uh, govern uh, love, which is essentially an, often an ungovernable thing. And it's uh, it's funny, it's strange, it makes a big uh, turn in the middle into a, a different uh, world, which initially seems like maybe it is uh, freer, but turns out to have uh, just as many uh, harsh and horrible rules to it as well. And there's, uh, you know, even a moving love story involved, because uh, he eventually strikes up a uh, perhaps uh, impossible uh, affection for a an, an outsider character played by Rachel Weiss. Because while you're at this hotel, one of the things that you can do to add days to your stay is you are sent out with tranquilizer guns to hunt the outsiders, who are the people who have escaped from the hotel and are living after the 45-day period without having been transformed into animals. I'm meaning to think that maybe Yorgos Lanthimos needed to take a nap before he pitched this movie to somebody. Uh, it's brilliant. I loved it. It's, uh, it's great, right. but crazy. And, uh, you know, makes a little bit more uh, 
obvious sense than uh, Dogtooth, which is uh, his sort of the movie that burst him onto the world cinema scene and which I uh, I liked even more than The Lobster, but The Lobster is very cool and we'll be getting uh, a release, so you'll be able to check that out. Now, to a certain class of our fans, or of film fans in general, the notion of a new Johnny Toe film starring Chow Yun-Fat, that's a musical, is kind of like getting a monkey's paw wish, but uh, it looks uh, from your description that it's sort of Got a, uh, a Circean level of gloss and, and beauty. Plus, uh, Toe is filming in 3D, which I assume is, uh, native 3D, not post-production 3D, and so therefore is awesome. Why else are those people perhaps incomplete and incorrect? So, as you're suggesting, the, the interest level in that, well, first of all, the, the characterization and the, the drama of all these people in this, uh, finance company that is in trying to launch an IPO, uh, just in the, the beginning of 2008, so you know something bad is going to happen, um, that th- there's a, enough sort of emotional uh, connection within the characters that you, you know, it's not just a, a kind of an obvious business place satire, like how to get ahead in business without really trying. Uh, it's based on a play by Sylvia Chang. Uh, but the thing that's really interesting about it is is the use of 3D and uh, the number of directors that I will willingly see uh, put on the 3D glasses for is pretty small. It uh, so far consists of Werner Herzog and now Johnny Toe. And he has always been sort of the master of spatial relationships. And he creates uh, this completely artificial set that the camera glides around. And it's really a masterclass in the way that you uh, can integrate 3D with the way that you act, people actually perceive the world that you see in so many other 3D films. For example, there will be a cut from a a low angle down on the ground to a high bird's eye view, the way that you would in a normal flat film. But in a 3D film, that's completely jarring because the, uh, you're, the, you suddenly feel as if you, the viewer, have been rocketed, uh, in space and that would be completely invisible to you in 2D and is, is shocking in 3D. But because Toe is sort of a master of the moving camera and has it moving through this set that is designed to have a camera prowl through it, it has this, uh, other whole exciting uh, level that rather than trying to make the extreme artificiality of 3D uh, seem uh, real, it uh, plays up the unreality of it. And I think that's what makes it interesting. And the name of the movie is Office, Office by Johnny Toe. I may have forgotten to say at the beginning. Uh, okay, now we are back in our comfort zone in which no one else is comfortable. Uh, Der Nachtmar, which is a German homunculus movie. Uh, and there's a monster and a teenage girl and all manner of trouble, but also there is, what am I, what am I seeing? Grungy urban youth tales of nihilist morality. What's going on besides homunculuses and, um, uh, teen chases in Der Nachtmar? Right. And I may, I may have to, uh, it may actually be an Austrian film. I think the director is Austrian. So, uh, but anyway, uh, it is, uh, so basically if you were to imagine, uh, a cross between a uh, film by Harmony Kareen, particularly in his Spring Breakers mode, and Frank Hennenlotter, the director of Basket Case, you've got Der Nachtmar. So it is another Austrian horror film uh, like uh, Goodnight Mommy, which is coming out in uh, wide distribution now, about the uh, collision between the safety and rationalism of the bourgeois world uh, versus the craziness and horror. And so this is about a uh, 16-year-old uh, girl who uh, has uh, hangs out with really hard partying friends and uh, uh, 
goes out to, you know, electronic music events and parties and, uh, but symbolizing, um, something about the, the darkness under the, uh, surface of the comfortable life of her, uh, controlling middle class parents. A homunculus shows up. She first sees it in the bushes at a party and then it starts, uh, coming into her apartment and, uh, sort of, uh, initially like the Snuffleupagus, only she ever sees it. Other people see the, uh, devastation that it wreaks, but they figure that she has gone crazy. And so, uh, it, uh, is a, a sort of a, great assault on the senses with different uh, levels of uh, uh, loudness and quietness and also a uh, fable about the uh, things uh, in the subconscious and the irrational bubbling up into the uh, rational controlled bourgeois Austrian world. And we'll be uh, right back with more Toronto International Film Festival talk after this important blood-sucking commercial message. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. We return from the intermission, refreshed, another box of jujubes at the ready, to be shot in the face with nail guns by a cyborg super soldier who we see through the eyes of, and because it is Russian, you know it's going to be even crazier than you thought. Rail guns. Rail guns, <laughs> yes. not nail guns? Yes. This, okay. is, this is rail guns. At one point, rail guns are used to explode a bunch of vans full of bad guys. It's pretty awesome. Um, so this is uh, another divisive film. Uh, a lot of 
uh, critics uh, dismissed it because they don't like action movies and don't uh, apparently like pleasure of any kind, and uh, they were dragged unwilling to this. If you're talking about an assault on the senses, this uh, film by uh, Ilya Nyshuler, who is a uh, Russian... Uh, this is his uh, film debut. He's made really cool videos for his uh, punk band before, but this is an enormously assured uh, technical achievement in which uh, you see everything from the point of view of the uh, silent uh, cyborg uh, character. So it's been compared by a lot of people to a first-person shooter video game. But doing that and being thrilling, and, and this really played in the, in the theater at probably the greatest a sense of excitement in a theater I was in the whole time, and it w went on to win the uh, People's Choice Midnight Madness Award for the best film in the Midnight Madness series. And, uh, you know, if Equilibrium is a hit among our people, this hardcore is definitely going to enter people's uh, canon of uh, action movies on their DVD shelf. So uh, the cyborg is battling a, a telekinetic bad guy and mowing his way through uh, legions of mooks. Uh, Charlotte Copley from uh, District 13 uh, shows up as, in a whole bunch of uh, different roles as different avatars of himself, and it uh, never lets up. Uh, and it moves you through, uh, but it also never repeats itself. It does every style of action from your fist fight to your gun fight to your parkour to your foot chase to your uh, vehicle chase uh, and uh, has a great, uh, uh, not only a selection of songs, but a great sort of techno soundtrack. Uh, one theme this year definitely is that uh, the influence of Tangerine Dream on soundtracks is, is back in force. <laughs> it's back to the 70s, just like you're building. Yeah, yes, indeed. And uh, there's a, this has, uh, starts off with a really great title sequence and uh, uh, that is something to be loved at a film festival where so many things just start with a series of black cards and there was a big bidding war at it for the festival it didn't have distribution coming in but it's got distribution now and will get a wide release and uh, be out uh, sometime probably in the next year or so so uh, Hardcore by Ilya Nyshuler is uh, a, a real uh, fresh, fun, crazy action film. And speaking of Kiyoshi Kurosawa who we have tagged as if to foreshadow his appearance uh, he has a new one, Journey to the Shore, which is a ghost movie, and then more than a ghost movie, or just a really great ghost movie, or is that spoilers? Um, it is a, a ghost movie that initially seems kind of pedestrian. Uh, so what happens is that uh, this woman who's, uh, she's a widow, her husband has been dead for three years, and all of a sudden he shows up in her apartment, and he's not ghostly in any way, he's solid, he's normal, he's himself, he's no nothing weird is happening, except her husband is back, and he wants to take her on a road trip, because it's taken her, him three years to get to her, he's had to walk from where he exited the uh, afterlife to find her again, and during that time he met a bunch of other people, and he wants to introduce uh, her to all of them. And so initially it sort of seems like, uh, y you know, kind of a weird uh, romantic comedy kind of road trip thing. Uh, and then as they go along, each uh, sort of episode on this road trip takes you uh, deeper and deeper into what are more outwardly traditional ghost story events. But it's still very placid and normal on, on the surface with very little uh, sort of special effects. But it is that very placidity that it winds up being strange and winds up uh, explaining to you why it is that Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who always makes strange, uh, weird, uh, memorable films, uh, found the source material that's based on a novel uh, interesting, and that it's not wasn't just sort of a uh, peculiar grab at sort of a more mainstream kind of film, but indeed uh, is uh, 
still kind of a, a gentle ghost movie, but also uh, unsettling in its own way. Okay, so from an unsettling ghost movie, we have a weird prepubescent island of Dr. Moreau type situation with Evolution, a French film by Lucille Hadjihailovich, if I'm saying that correctly. And if I'm not, well, what are the odds that she's going to write in and complain? Um, what's going on on the weird island of Evolution besides, I suppose... No evolution at all. So this is a, a dreamy mood piece. Uh, there are a bunch of prepubescent boys who live on this island, and then they're uh, mothers and nurses. And they're uh, all the mothers and nurses are all suspiciously uh, kind of young and and uh, not only attractive but kind of similar to one another. And uh, their uh, degree to which they are actually motherly or protective of the kids becomes uh, questioned over time. And as you go through this. A dreamy, eerie mood piece. Uh, there are sort of echoes of uh, uh, Dr. Moreau going on. There's. Uh, it looks like they, they might be experimenting on the kids. And there's no little girls around. There are no other adults. And there are no boys of age. There are just boys all of, these, of the same prepubescent age. And so it is a sort of a slow burner. It's a, a more of a mood piece than something that has traditional horror shocks. But the horror imagery eventually uh, does occur. And uh, there are some nods to Cronenberg, uh, uh, shall we say, as you find out who the mothers slash nurses maybe really are and what it is that they're uh, doing. Rapidly downshifting, or rather upshifting, we get then to Hong Kong film. Kind of looks a little old school because it's got a cop and a and a guard and a Bangkok prison. It's SPL2, A Time for Consequences by Soi Chang. And uh, the guard is, of course, the great, the immortal, the magical Tony Jaa. Are there yet more reasons to see it? Um, it is what it says on the tin. Uh, well, first of all, <laughs> except for the fact that um, if you remember SPL, forget SPL. This is an, a sequel in name only. Uh, it does have uh, Simon Yam in it uh, playing, I think, a different Maverick cop, or maybe it's supposed to be the same Maverick cop, except this one is in the present day and SPL was 10 years ago and he does not uh, spoilers. <laughs> that, that, that wouldn't make sense. Um, yes, maybe it was his twin brother. Yes. Uh, and in fact, the mood or is his solid ghost. Who knows? It took 10 years to walk back from here, but really it's, it's a, it's a, it's a non-sequel sequel. And right. uh, the tone and the mood is uh, different. This one is uh, uh, melodramatic in a different way. It's much less of a heroic bloodshed movie, but this is a Baroque stylish, uh, fight film with the uh, great uh, Wu Jing is the other uh, is the character playing the the main uh, uh, undercover cop who winds up thrown into uh, a Thai jail uh, due to the efforts of a series of organ leggers. Uh, and uh, what he doesn't know and Tony Jaa doesn't know is that he's the one who can be a bone marrow match for his. Uh, Tony Jaw's daughter with leukemia. So we're again, uh, like a true Hong Kong action movie, this does not uh, thinly spread the melodrama, shall we say, but the, <laughs> the fights uh, really pay off and they're uh, staged in uh, uh, different ways each time. And the big climactic uh, fight at the end is uh, uh, quite thrilling indeed. And it's uh, one of those ones in which they, uh, the two of them together are necessary to take down the um, main physical opponent. And so uh, if you are into Feng Shui too, you've already decided that you're going to see this uh, movie and uh, I don't need to keep talking. All right. <laughs> then, then we shall move right along to the distant future, uh, the distant future world of the Whispering Star, which has uh, a robot 
or technically, I guess, an Android, um, and a, a baby talking computer, which is enough trouble to get into for most people. But this being Sion Suno, I suspect it's something a little more, what do I want to say? Maybe not meditative, but maybe something a little deeper than it, that? It's or very meditative, actually. This is a, uh, it is not a fast-paced, crazy uh, fest the way that his Tokyo Tribe is, for example. Uh, this is definitely in the art film column, and it's about loneliness and solitude. It's shot in black and white, and unlike almost all black and white shot today, it actually looks beautiful because there's enough light being shone on the images to actually pick up black and white photography properly. And it is uh, basically about this uh, android courier. She travels uh, from planet to planet, delivering actual physical packages in a world or in a universe, a galaxy, I guess it might be, where uh, teleportation exists. So any sort of ordinary thing, you can just teleport from one planet to the planet, uh, another. But there are certain things of profound significance that people actually want the actual original object, not the disassembled and reassembled version of it. And so her job is to uh, take uh, these items of profound personal significance, uh, some of which are uh, obviously sentimental, like a, a set of negative uh, photos of a family together, or other ones is like, here's a cigarette that's sort of half burned to ash. You never know what's the significance of that. You don't necessarily know. And when she, uh, and also this is once people develop teleportation, that was kind of it for humanity's drive. And now uh, we are dwindling away into fewer and fewer people. And the uh, sort of desolate, depopulated planets that she uh, arrives on to deliver these packages, uh, those sequences are set at the still abandoned, quarantined um, bits of Japan that were uh, in the Fukushima radiation zone. And so this makes Sion Sono's third film uh, referencing that disaster, and this one is uh, from uh, more of a remove and more of a uh, sort of a, a philosophical uh, sense rather than the more uh, realistic version of Land of Promise or the uh, sort of extreme teen angst of uh, Himizu. Um, this one, I, I you probably will have to catch it uh, on the festival circuit or maybe uh, you know you might find it uh, streaming online. But it, this is not the this is the kind of thing that plays festivals and does not necessarily get a a, a wider release the way that. Uh, Tokyo Tribe or Why Don't You Go Play in Hell would be more likely to get. Now we're on a, a relatively uh, low spot on our list for the first South Korean film, although I, I must admit we've skipped a couple. Uh, but this one is the first one with monsters in it, uh, and it is Collective Invention, although I suspect the monsters are deep within ourselves, or are they also out there trying to eat people? He's not a monster. He's just a guy who went in to do uh, pharmaceutical testing and came out with a fish head. Ah, uh, so the monster is in the corporate boardroom. The monster is in the corporate boardroom and in the... Oh, uh, I hate those guys. And in the uh, corruption of government that allows them to continue to get their uh, hooks into him. So he just wants to be an ordinary person again, uh, but society is uh, turned against him in this sort of... Uh, but he he really does kind of look like a deep one. He doesn't want to eat anybody. He just wants to uh, he just wants to get along. But so if you imagine a, a Korean Frank Capra movie uh, starring a, a, a deep one, uh, that is Collective Invention uh, by uh, Kwon O Kwang, and uh, so it's a, a fun little uh, satirical fantasy. And again, we have uh, a a stand a standout standard on the film fest circuit, Takashi Miike, who has a new one, Yakuza Apocalypse, which 
This is the apocalypse for Yakuza or of Yakuza or by Yakuza. It is uh, an apocalypse that uh, affects everybody, but disproportionately affects Yakuza. Because what happens is a plague starts going around, a, a communicable vampire sort of thing, where people who are bitten uh, by, first of all, this particular uh, Yakuza boss who is dying, uh, but then it spreads from person to person the way that uh, vampirism or zombieism does. And it turns ordinary people... Not just into vampires, but into Yakuza vampires. And so if everybody is turning into a Yakuza, including little kids and uh, girls in uh, school go outfits and just uh, ordinary shopkeepers, the Yakuza themselves have no ordinary people to prey on. They have no civilians. And so they have to resort to... Uh, uh, a series of increasingly desperate measures. There's sort of two gangs, the gang in, that's sort of spreading the Yakuza uh, vampire uh, virus, as it were, or contagion or whatever you want to call it, versus the other group who want to destroy it and maintain the status quo. And that group includes like a, a Kappa. And the biggest, uh, most dangerous uh, villain of all is a guy in a sort of a moth-eaten frog costume uh, that looks like a, a, a bad mascot for like a, a low-rent um, maybe sushi house or something. And so this, as you may have intuited, is a crazy subversion of genre. It's a spoof and uh, invokes all of the classic beats and moments of a over-the-top uh, action extravaganza in order to just turn them on their heads and, and subvert them. So uh, this is not a straight-up uh, crazy cult action movie by any means. It is the uh, the inverse of that, but uh, uh, delightful all the same. Okay. Uh, thematically and geographically, we go to the other end of Asia for Baskin, a Turkish film, which uh, looks like very much my cup of insanely sweet, thick coffee. Robin, this has got an Ottoman-era police station that is a doorway to hell. And aside from cheap Maxwell Street jokes, what can you tell me about Baskin? Uh, what happens when a squad car or a van full of cops gets a uh, call to go to this location and they step through and indeed they enter hell and uh, they enter a weird a ritualistic uh, series of, uh, of horrors is sort of an initiatory aspect to it. And the uh, fun thing about this is that it is um, made for, it looks like about a dollar ninety eight, <laughs> And that's a Turkish dollar ninety eight. So it goes yeah, farther. Yeah, it does an incredible job <laughs> of uh, making things eerie and disturbing all the same, even though there's, they really have, you know, no budget. So some of the demons have like, uh, you know, green plastic garbage bags and chains are their costumes, but it's really scary and, 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 and horrible and freaky and hallucinatory. And uh, so it's been a long time since, uh, well, probably forever since a Turkish genre film was actually good enough to be interesting. And, you know, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. You can tell that it was uh, uh, made on a, a shoestring budget, but it has the same kind of uh, inventiveness that, say, Sam Raimi showed in the first Evil Dead movie, but uh, plays it. Uh, but there is humor in it, for sure, but it's uh, uh, it doesn't have that sort of... Uh, campy strain of humor that increasingly becomes part of the Evil Dead uh, series. It is more sort of a, a weird, uh, as a viewer, you were dropped into this weird, uh, disturbing world and uh, uh, sustains that uh, throughout. It's really quite uh, a, a kind of minor miracle of uh, edgy filmmaking. I think that's possibly because both Turks and Chicagoans have sort of a very 
a very uh, bipolar relationship with whether or not their police stations actually lead to hell. Uh, yes, there is definitely <laughs> a political uh, subtext uh, operating through the film. Uh, real fast, another South Korean film, uh, which means automatically see it, but this one is called Veteran, so you can narrow it down from all the other South Korean films. This is a cop movie. Is it a badass cop movie or more than that? It, it is a badass cop movie. It's basically a combination of comedy and hard action. So if you're thinking of like The Heat or 48 Hours where there is actual real danger and horrible things happen, but it's still a lot of it is played for laughs against the tension of that action. It's a big mainstream uh, commercial film. It is uh, one of uh, already a huge uh, box office uh, all-time uh, hit uh, in uh, South Korea. And if you live somewhere that shows Korean movies, uh, f for example, perhaps Niles. Perhaps Niles. Perhaps Niles. It is already playing. So you can okay. go out and, and see this now if you're lucky enough to be in a place that shows films to the uh, Korean community. I will cast a weather eye toward Niles and report back. And then we have an American film, hurrah, America, called Green Room, although I note that they brought over a bunch of foreigners to be in it. It's got Anton Yelchin and Imogen Boots and our buddy Patrick Stewart. So what's going on there? I'm sure that it's a uh, it's a hilarious uh, showbiz comedy in which they all eat tiny sandwiches. Right, Robin? No, it's about what happens when your punk band takes and sort of an ill-advised gig, uh, finds this club in the middle of nowhere and uh, realizes that you are playing for neo-nazi punks and uh, <gasps> the worst kind the worst kind and they uh do an an anti-nazi punk song uh they do a cover version of a very famous one that we will not to quote the name of on this family podcast um <laughs> and uh but you know after that they play their own material and they go over uh, well with the crowd but then they go back into the titular green room and discover that a they are witnesses to a murder uh uh, and they are then locked in the green room and are going to have to get out uh, when they are surrounded by uh, uh, neo-Nazi drug dealers led by Patrick Stewart. And Yay! he does a really great job of uh, playing the character in a real way. This is not a mustache-twirling uh, villain performance. This is a no-nonsense guy whose business has been... Uh, uh, disturbed. He didn't start the problem, but he's by gosh going to finish it. And he has a plan. And that plan does not include any of our punk heroes surviving. So what we want to see now is him and Ben Kingsley from uh, Sexy Beast uh, uh, fight it out, right? Duke it out in a, uh, a sinister bald person contest. Exactly. So, uh, and so it's uh, basically a, a survival thriller and is uh, really well executed. And uh, that is, I think, probably one of the things that uh, is tipped to be kind of a breakout uh, hit from the festival. I'm a, I'm a big fan of non-supernatural survival horror. I think that it's surprisingly not done a lot, and yet it is so super strong when it's done well. Uh, from our overdose of testosterone, we enter estrogen country with girls lost, or do we, Robin? We don't. No, it's all about testosterone and how it messes you up. So this is a, uh, a modern uh, contemporary fantasy about... A trio of girls who uh, discover this strange seed and grow it in uh, the greenhouse that uh, one of the uh, girl's parents has and grows very quickly into a weird alien plant with a strange sap and they drink the sap and it turns out that it turns them into boys. And uh, this is particularly tempting for uh, one of the girls who, in fact, uh, realizes through this experience that she was always meant to be a boy. And uh, so it's uh, the very au courant 
uh, uh, gender issues that are being uh, fought over in the fields of Twitter every day are uh, here uh, realized in a uh, nicely controlled, uh, uh, character-driven uh, fantasy movie about what happens if you can just drink a bunch of sap and become a boy and then suddenly you're, you look like a boy but you're full of testosterone and maybe you're starting to make testosterone decisions and maybe that creates tension uh, with the other girls for whom it was sort of an interesting lark but not something they want to stick with. Well, surely we're in safe hands at a Polish wedding because what could go wrong except possibly a Dibuk showing up in Demon? And now this is, uh, is this based on the famous what, 1913 or whatever it was, play the Dibbuk? Or is this a uh, different Dibbuk play? It is based on a play, but it's based on a newer play. Uh, and it's very uh, much about uh, Poland's amnesia about uh, what happened uh, to all of the Jews in Poland. Um, and so it is, uh, I think, more of a kind of a contemporary uh, uh, world cinema sort of title, even though it was programmed in the more genre-specific uh, uh, vanguard area. But it is about uh, the ghosts of the past. And it's really uh, less a horror movie than uh, the everything goes wrong at a wedding genre, except the thing that goes wrong is that a ghost shows up to remind you about what happened to an entire uh, group of people who were uh, wiped off the map and nobody wants to uh, remember. And there's a kind of a sad note, actually, is that the... <laughs> a sad note to the Polish Holocaust. <laughs> uh, the sad note being that the director who was there to present uh, the film uh, on the Monday that I saw it uh, died on the following Friday. Oh, my he was, goodness. He was only 42. He was at another film festival. And so that's... Uh, uh, a really sad example of someone who's, you know, he made this film and it's great and uh, it's coming out. And then, uh, so uh, Life is Fragile uh, is a, a sad final note for uh, the Cinema Hut this year. Uh, so uh, whether you're living life through cinema or through uh, games or however else you want to live life, I think the lesson is that we all have to uh, go out and make sure we uh, live our lives because we only Keep get on one. living it. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, that, I think, will run us completely out of time. There's many more possible films to look at. I recommend people follow the link in the show notes to Robin's TIFF report. And, of course, look for these films on your streaming selection of choice or perhaps in your very own Niles, should you be so lucky as to have one. Right. Or, in... or check out my 2014 list, and those things will be on your Netflixes and, and discs and so, uh, and so yeah. forth already. Why not go back and listen to last year's episode? It'll be as fresh as a daisy. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. 
And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tove and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logical Brothers, but Brothers in Roleplaying. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the kindly visage of Peter Frampton gazing down from the double album cover tell us we've once more entered the friendly, shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But in the gaming hut, not all is silent between the paneled walls. There is a great deal of muttering, even some declaiming, as players are delivering their character's internal monologue. Does Peter Frampton approve, or does he stare annoyedly? Robin, what is internal monologue delivered by players. Why do they do it? And do we like it? So uh, an example of internal monologue is delivered by players is let's say that we are uh, characters in a sort of traditional fantasy game and you're a dwarf and I'm an elf. And I uh, say to the GM and therefore announce uh, to all of the other uh, people in the room, my character is named uh, Alendra, let's say. And I say, well, Alendra looks over at the dwarf and she doesn't really trust dwarves at all. And, uh, she remembers the time when uh, her family was uh, run out of their uh, grove by dwarves who uh, chopped down all the trees and paved them over. So she's, uh, she looks as, askance at him and, and uh, distrusts him completely. So the question being, is that interesting or useful play or is that uh, selfish? And in fact, this question was posed to uh, the panelists at a uh, GMing masterclass panel held at uh, Fan Expo. And I thought it was an interesting and different enough question. Uh, we got a lot of the, you know, the, sort of the usual ones, but this was one that was kind of new on me. So I thought I would uh, steal that question and talk about it here on the show. So the question is whether that is illuminating for the other characters and uh, the other players, I guess, more uh, specifically, uh, or if it is uh, a sort of a selfish uh, kind of inner exploration that doesn't give anybody else anything to uh, react to. Because if I just describe my feelings about that character, but then don't act on them and don't make that character aware of them, nothing is actually really happening in the story. Uh, we've just got a glimpse into the character's mind in what is essentially a a dramatic format of people talking to each other rather than the sort of more novelistic format in which you uh, expect to get a lot of internal monologue from your lead character. So, Ken, do you think that this is a problem or an interesting, useful technique? I think that, like many techniques, it can be useful until it becomes annoying. Um, the example that you gave, because we are taking pity on our listeners, was actually kind of short and kind of useful. And if you'd been in a game that I ran and you said, this is what my dwarf character thinks, I would think that that was pretty much 
you know, you contributing to the world, you doing a little help, giving other players hooks to hang the role-playing on, and then you got right to it. That took maybe, what, a minute and a half, less than that even, uh, to do your little dialogue, your monologue. So I don't think that that would be a problem. It's when they start doing the, you know, to understand this, you have to go all the way back to the time of my great-grandfather, when blah, 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 and start reading off their blue book, that you begin to run into maybe a problem with it. In the games that I run, so much... Uh, is driven by what characters realize, right? There's so much intellectual adventure in it that players thinking out loud is sort of a natural part of our gameplay. And so it can shade into internal monologue when someone says, well, ordinarily I would think this, but because of my character's, you know, past history with being shot in the face, I'm not going to think that I'm going to do this other thing. And so that sort of degree of internal monologue or sort of signposting for the other characters turns out to be helpful and I think improves play at our table. But I think that, like many things, so much is dependent on delivery and so much is dependent on context, because what you don't want to do, for example, is slow down a combat to deliver an internal monologue, to have a, a sort of a Stan Lee moment where you recollect your origin story while you're supposed to be punching the Kree, that's not really going to be helpful. Whereas, conversely, having a Stan Lee monologue moment while you recollect your origin story when you decide whether or not to fight the Kree, that's actually kind of useful to the players, I would think. I think the the difference is in uh, how often you do it, right? So that if you're continually giving your negative responses to the other player characters in a way that they can't uh, act upon, that that is, uh, I think that becomes a, a kind of, or can become kind of passive aggressive, right? That you're saying, oh, well, I, I really don't like dwarves, but I'm going to maintain my composure. Uh, that the first time you do it, it's like, okay. Um, but then the second time, if you keep doing it, it, it seems like a shot at the other player that they can't respond to, that you're holding on to your ball rather than throwing the ball to another player. Um, part of that, though, is as you suggest, that some people are really thinking through what it is that they want to do and are trying to uh, come up with something to find an action. And that's fine if your internal monologue eventually uh, leads to something that, that you then move into the fictive space and not just in the, the space of your character's head. Uh, and for example, in Drama System, I've run it for a lot of different groups, and I notice that there are a small number of uh, players who prefer, rather than jumping in and playing the scene, to sort of run through in their heads, okay, well, I think that Jimmy has alienated me for the last time, so I'm uh, tired of uh, dealing with that. And, and my instruction there as a Drama System uh, GM is always to cut them off and say, okay, play the scene. Right. Rather than put that in dialogue. Right. So you've you've angered me for the last time, Jimmy. I'm cutting you off. Exactly. Make right. make the thing happen. And don't. And I think part of that is uh, that syndrome in particular is the player wanting the control of thinking three or four steps ahead where what you need to do is just do one step and then let the other player participate. So if you go up and as you say, so you've angered me for the last time, Jimmy, you then have Jimmy have a chance to respond either to apologize or to up the emotional ante or, or uh, whatever it is. And so you're not necessarily just stuck in your own head, but you're moving out of that. So I, I guess what I would want to do is divide it into uh, a bunch of different reasons why people are doing this. And so there's a reason you suggest, which is they're helping to build the world uh, in a way that seems more natural because uh, it would be weird in that situation for the character to 
go uh, to actually approach the dwarf and say, I don't like dwarves because in my backstory, this and that about dwarves. dwarves as you dwarves. know, yeah. Galadriel. Yeah, that, that's also <laughs> uh, disjunctive and weird. But the way to do that, I think, is to sort of divide between, uh, to provide the explanatory information uh, that reveals the backstory to the characters so that they can then do things that allow them to act on it. Like the, you know, what you could do is the, player of the dwarf character in that is you could go, okay, well, I'm going to recount the time that my father's uh, uh, gloriously uh, removed the disorder of a forest and made it into a beautiful flat uh, surface full of paving stones. And uh, so as uh, the character, you don't know that about the other uh, character's backstory, but about the as a player you do, and then you can use that to bring that out. And then uh, you would hope that the player uh, playing the elf character would then actually respond but again if the player really is trying to sort of lob darts without being involved to just have an interior experience and not an interactive experience they could say well i i work hard not to show that i am upset at this and not to reveal uh that i am distressed but as soon as this mission is over i will get as far away from this dwarf as possible but i don't give any indication that i'm upset by this revelation and again that becomes uh, a that's sort of a cheat, I think, in that you're requiring people to then petition you, right? That you've put this thing out on the table that you've then said, but don't touch this, right? Here, here's a here's the gun on the on the mantle, but uh, nobody sees the gun. Nobody's allowed to do anything with the gun. The gun's there, but you can't do anything with it, and I'm not going to do anything with it either. Yeah, it's it sort of comes under the broader rubric of just don't be passive aggressive, which I think is true in life as well as in role-playing, but is super true in role-playing because the whole point of role-playing is that you don't have to be passive aggressive. You can be regular aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the question is whether people are identifying that what that is, is passive aggressive, whether they're co being consciously passive aggressive or whether they're just sort of not wanting to sort of fully commit to something that will lead to character conflict. Um, so there's, uh, you know, it, so if you recognize this behavior in yourself, if you n use a lot of internal monologue in play, and I think it particularly comes into play in like online play by play stuff where it's sort of more natural on one hand, because you're uh, writing uh, essentially little bits of, of fictional text in which, you know, internal monologue comes naturally. Um, but I think you, uh, I, what I would urge people to do is to examine the extent to which what they're doing is something that they are allowing other people to interact with. And that if you're uh, withholding that from them, you know, being withholding is not a great thing in a collaborative enterprise of any sort. Yeah. And if you're uh, engaging in it in play by post, you can go on longer because people can always scroll down and get to the part where you say, and so I swing my axe at his head or whatever it is that you say that actually gets the story going. And it's on you, uh, even in play by post to, I think as, as you say, Robin, to provide a hook for someone else to, latch onto and respond either by saying, I join your axe with my bow or saying you're swinging an axe, you filthy traitor. I'm going to swing an axe at you or whatever the, whatever the moment actually calls for. And as long as you've provided that hook, I think it's less crucial in a play by post because so much of that has to be experienced by yourself, right? You're, you're not with other people. You're doing it all as internal monologue. Even if you're technically doing it as dialogue with some guy who's going to come come along and read it in, you know, 10 hours or whatever. So I think that it, again, I guess maybe format is another one of those sort of, it depends type areas that our internal monologue question can, uh, it lied around. So we, we've, uh, I think proposed that if you are a player who does this, uh, examine 
the extent to which you are uh, doing it in order to kind of remain safe and not engage, in which case uh, don't try and be safe and do engage. If you're a GM uh, who is fi uh, facing this thing and it comes up a bunch of times and it's not just because it's lengthy, uh, but because the uh, it's uh, withholding, what is a, as a GM, what would you suggest that people do? I think lengthy is also a problem. I mean, right. again, I, I said that at the beginning. Right. But, it it um, is a problem, if, but you can just say, yeah. hey. <laughs> hey, yes. Today, while we're young, yeah. um, <laughs> while you're talking, the orcs attack. Um, yeah, I think that if you're the GM and you have that sort of uh, closed off emotional moment, you can either, you know, go to them and say, so what do you do? What action do you take? Uh, and sort of put a put a hook on it for them. Or you can turn to the other player and say, roll your detect lies or your uh, wisdom score or whatever to see if you can figure out what their emotional state is. And if they do, then they can respond to it anyway. And then that takes it out of selfish box and into group box, which is where it belongs the first time. And ideally you don't have to do that too often before the player thinks, well, it's going to go out on the table anyway. I might as well get the fun of, you know, clattering it out there. Uh, well, I think uh, we've proposed uh, what to do in both cases from both points of view. And so I think we can consider this installment of the gaming hut, well rolled, and uh, I see that Peter Frampton is smiling down upon us as if to confirm that very fact. So now it's time to head off to our final hut of the episode. It's not easy teaching in America's second worst school district and being a wizard on the side. But Nathan Colwicky thought he had it covered. Until he received news of the worst kind. Inoperable cancer. He'll be dead before the start of the next school year. Now he will have to scour time and unheard of dimensions to find a magical cure to save himself. But can he discover an occult cure before the cancer kills him? And what will he be willing to do to find it? Find out in Terminal Magics, a novel by Plot Points Impresario Ben Riggs. Terminal Magics is currently funding on Inkshares.com, a website which is half Kickstarter, half publishing house. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics to hear an audiobook of the first chapter. Ben will also be posting a chapter a week for your reading pleasure. Back the book and a beautiful physical copy of the novel will be delivered to your door if the book funds. But Ben Riggs is sweetening the deal for the fine audience of Cartus. If the book funds with 1,000 backers, he'll produce an abridged audiobook of the novel and unleash it upon the world for free. Tell your friends, neighbors, investigators, players, and favorite local werewolves. Go to Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. That's Inkshares.com and search Terminal Magics. Don't wait, because this campaign will be over faster than you can say, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan! The tones of the clavecin, or perhaps even the harpsichord, uh, plus the fact that we are uh, writing our notes for this segment on parchment with quill pens, tell us that we have once more entered the long-ago confines of the History Hut, and we're going to tackle a subject that I think a lot of people might expect us to cover in Consulting Occultist, except there isn't anything all that occultist about it, really, except for the name, and that is the Hellfire Club. Now, uh, Ken, often I uh, ask you in these segments to start with the history and move uh, at the end to its pop cultural 
uh, lineage, but I think in this case, uh, it's worth it to kind of go backwards and to look at uh, why we still know about the Hellfire Club and how that informs our notions of what the actual historical uh, thing was, because there's very two two big nerd cultural reference points, one of which uh, feeds from the other. And that is there's an episode of the Avengers from 1966 in which there's a, a Hellfire Club uh, plot line uh, and uh, Emma Peel's uh, cat suit in that, uh, perhaps imprinted on a generation of, uh, of uh, young boys and perhaps other people as well. And uh, then in... Let's just say a generation, a generation was imprinted. Yes, I, I have no agenda as to who should be imprinted by uh, Donna Rig in a cat suit. Um, and uh, then... You just can't remain neutral. No. You have to engage. You have to engage. Don't just monologue about yes, it. That's exactly. what I say. Uh, and then we had the... Uh, very much referring to that, uh, I guess, 80s X-Men storyline with the Hellfire Club. And I guess they've gone on to become a regular uh, set of X-Men mutant uh, characters. So, uh, Ken, how does... Uh, our contemporary understanding of these match or uh, perhaps not match the historical uh, set of organizations that we call the Hellfire Club, but that the members of which did not necessarily call it that? Um, but the, the thing that they have in common, I mean, the Hellfire Club and the X-Men sort of combines the, you know, uh, overt sexuality of your Diana Rigg touch of brimstone which, in fairness, was also part of the original Hellfire Club, with the notion that, oh my god, it's called Hellfire Club, they have to be some sort of weird magical conspirators. And that's the thing that probably, well, almost certainly didn't happen, although Francis Dashwood, the hellfiriest of the Hellfire Club, was weird and occasionally magical and also a conspirator. He just generally wasn't all those things at once. But uh, they sort of pull from a larger tradition within British arts, which the Hellfire Club include a number of artistic members of one sort or another, among them possibly William Hogarth, almost certainly Benjamin Franklin, uh, John Wilkes, the great uh, uh, freedom fighter in the British Parliament, was a Hellfire Clubist. Um, and this tradition was the sort of um, antinomian, anti-morality tradition in which the, the, the stuffiness and convention of British life is resisted uh, by any means necessary, mostly by saying, oh, I'm going to call my club the Hellfire Club, and look at me, I'm not going to hell at all, and I'm going to have sex with a girl dressed as a nun, or in Emma Peel's case, dressed in a, a dominatrix outfit, but whatever it is, she's going to be dressed like you're not supposed to be dressed, and that's going to get everything all exciting and, and, and happy-go-lucky, and that sort of larger trend, I mean, you can see it through... Uh, Drinking songs, you can see it all the way back to sort of the tradition of the, of the rake and the, the guy who's, um, who goes out and he, and he does all manner of bad things, but because he's a noble, he can't be touched. So there's a level of, you know, envy as well as, uh, socially, uh, constructed outsiderness to it. Byron, of course, uh, he, although he was too late to be in the proper Hellfire Club, he, he, um, uh, builds on a lot of that same imagery. So all these guys, um, including the British authors of the Hellfire Club um, uh, storyline. I think that they were British at the time, and if they weren't, they certainly became British later on. Um, and then, obviously, The Avengers was a British TV show, come out of that tradition, which also, in The Avengers episode, of course, combined sort of dangerous pranks. And the prank 
aspect of it, the sort of Lords of Misrule quality, was another big part of Dashwood's Hellfire Club. Because what they love to do is invite stuffy people to dinner and then tell them, well, uh, for a surprise, we're going to summon the devil. And instead, they drop a baboon into the room. And then the guy would, like, you know, go crazy and, and run around screaming, oh, my God, the devil's here. And, of course, it was just a baboon. And then they would all laugh at him. Although, just a baboon, that's <laughs> a baboon can rip your... Your leg off, so... Well, it might not even have been a baboon. It might have been a smaller, more tame a, a, monkey. A macaque, perhaps. A macaque, maybe. A capuchin a, monkey. A, a capuchin, maybe. That would be maybe appropriately even. anti-clerical, I suppose. Um, so, true. from the list of names that you uh, were uh, giving us uh, earlier, we can tell that this is happening in the 18th century. Uh, do you want to start with the general sort of social context of the 18th century and why antinomianism had to be a reaction to it? Or do you want to tell us about... Uh, more about Francis Dashwood. Well, I mean, the 18th century is what they call the Augustan era in in Britain, right? It's when everyone sort of comes out of the Enlightenment. They've got Newton, and he's put the stars in their courses, and he's given us gravity and the calculus, and everything, we now know how it works. And poetry has got exact sort of rhyming rules, and arts have, you know, you can paint so many goddesses on so many clouds, and it can be such and such a dimension, and everything is all lined up and neat. And this is the sort of universe that H.P. Lovecraft, for example, looks at as the pinnacle of human civilization, when you have sort of symmetrical architecture, and you have a symmetrical poetry, and everything is metrical and feted, and everyone's in their great chain of being, from the king on his throne down to the lowest peasant in the land. Everyone knows their place, and because we are in a uh, pre-industrial revolution, a, a price revolution, things are getting um, uh, better for some and worse for others, and that is what is ticking off the uh, beginning of this uh, counter movement, which shows up not just in uh, sort of this direct level of antinomianism, but also in things like the Gothic movement, where uh, Horace Walpole decides just to build a silly, ugly thing on his property just because he can, and it's not a true to arc to Augustan architecture. It's crazy and, and pre-Augustan. It's Gothic, by gosh. And uh, so the the sort of notion that once society has been set up to be perfect, your job as a um, uh, as a free thinker is to poke at it, it becomes a natural response to a bunch of people sitting around in drawing rooms, uh, drinking claret and telling each other that they've got everything worked out correctly. Right. Especially if you're atop a stratified class structure that says that the rules don't really apply to you and they're just uh, voluntary. They're uh, all about social pressure. And so it makes sense that a certain number of people go, well, wait a minute, the rules don't apply to me, so why do I have to follow them? Uh, so I guess this brings us to uh, Francis Dashwood. Tell us about him. Uh, Dashwood is an interesting fellow. Um, he was famously a young rake. He would go around uh, in Europe and, and, and whore and drink and throw things and run up giant bills. Uh, everyone of a certain uh, social status in Britain was expected to go on what they called the Grand Tour, where you would go around to Italy and maybe France and maybe uh, further afield, and you were supposed to see art and uh, and sunshine and, and things that you didn't have back in England, and then come back and you were all improved by that, and you could take the aesthetics, uh, the sort of aesthetic polish that you'd gained by exposure to classical civilization, and take it back to Britain and just make Augustan Britain even more Augustany. But of course, one of the things that they had in the Mediterranean was a cheap currency, so you could live like a lord, and you could have horrible uh, sexual relations with everyone, and then leave because you couldn't be sued in their stupid court because you were a Britisher. And so it just led to a great deal of very bad behavior. You run up gambling debts and not pay because it's, ha-ha, you're a foreigner, screw you. And uh, again, it became sort of a, 
a thing like we have, you know, sort of our horror at various celebutant misbehavior. Uh, they had that same sort of thing in the 18th century. They would read in the public prints that such and such a person, perhaps Francis Dashwood, had misbehaved while in, uh, in, in Italy, in Leghorn. And uh, was a scandal and a, and a, and a hissing and a byword and had to flee to Tuscany or somewhere. And then you would be able to tut tut over your own perfectly uh, nice middle class life. And the sort of the, uh, the out of balance wheel keeps the rest of the system in balance. But of course, if you're a guy like Dashwood, who is rich and influential, he was the um, heir to the barony of dispenser. Um, uh, he was the son of the daughter of an Earl. So he's very, very tied in there. He's buddies with William Pitt, uh, their college buddies, which as we've learned from British politics means all manner of excitement could be gotten up to. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of initi initiation rituals. Yeah. Speaking of, um, there will always be an England and now maybe you'll think twice about how good an idea George Washington had. Um, anyway, uh, he Dashwood, not Washington f formed a number of sort of clubs to keep the fun going. When he got back from his grand tour, he had, um, a dinner society called the Society of the Dilettanti, which meant people who don't do anything with their lives and just goof around. Um, and he sort of lived this sort of life of sort of a, a devil may care fellow while simultaneously also being very much connected to the whatever passed for the British intelligence service. He uh, brought in various spy masters and introduced the other people at dilettanti parties. He was a, a member of parliament and he would occasionally come out for one or another kind of good works. The line um, between gossip and tradecraft is a razor thin. Yes. And eventually he became um, postmaster general of Britain, which meant his job was to go through the mail. So he was like the NSA of Great Britain in the uh, 1770s during George Washington times. So he's kind of a interesting figure in a lot of ways. He, he was a treasurer for a while, although as people said, he's not capable of adding up a bar tab. Uh, <laughs> but as uh, the Earl of Dispenser, he never had to add he up was, a bar he tab. He was parsimonious. He left before paying. That's uh, he just had other people pay. It what all worked every out Every treasury well. aspires to do. <laughs> if only. Um, and he had, uh, as I say, a lot of friends who were sort of political radicals among them, uh, his off and on buddy, John Wilkes and his buddy, uh, Pitt, who is not a radical, but was, more of a, uh, more of a Whig than a Tory in, in that, in that world. Um, but he, of course, stayed very much in the Tory, uh, aristocracy and wound up, as I say, being postmaster general under Lord North. So he sort of is able to move back and forth between all these strata of society. Um, so he's devious. And as I say, he's a conspirator because he's out there reading everyone's mail and, uh, sneaking around causing trouble. Uh, uh, possibly as a spy, maybe as even a sort of Scarlet Pimpernel type fellow who's a big silly goof in public, but in private, he's, uh, manipulating stuff and conspiring with people. And of course, he sets up something called the Abbey of St. Francis or the Brotherhood of St. Francis, um, or the Orderhood of Knights of West Wycombe, West Wycombe being where he bought an abandoned, uh, abbey, uh, Medmenham Abbey and set up his little having sex with nuns and running around and talking smack about God and the devil club, which he called, as I say, the Brotherhood of St. Francis, but everyone else called the Hellfire Club, referring to an earlier club that had been established in 1718 
by, uh, I believe, the Duke of Wharton, who was a problem child of, in his own way. And had a snappier title. And had a, well, he was a full-on duke. Right, but his organization had a snappier title. Hellfire Club is a lot easier to remember than the other one. Yeah, and so I think that it sort of gets drifted over into the order of uh, Friars of St. Francis, or the brother, the Monks of Medmenham. It has a million different names, so Hellfire Club might have been one of those. And as I say, he brought sort of cool people uh, like Hogarth and um, uh, Benjamin Franklin to his parties and a guy named Bub Dodington, who was famous for being fat and politically connected. So he was sort of like a proto Mycroft with goutier feet, I guess. Um, and uh, then he also would play uh, tricks on the Earl of Sandwich, uh, like, you know, releasing monkeys into their uh, in, in, into the room yes. and things like and that. And holding the mayo. Yes. And he was uh, he was sort of a rival. Uh, of our pal Horace Walpole. So Walpole wrote down all manner of really awesome gossip about him, which is how we know a lot of what we know about this alleged secret society. But again, I think part of the fun of having a society where you have sex with prostitutes dressed as nuns is you sort of let it drop to people who it will shock. And uh, although I doubt that it shocked, uh, I doubt anything shocked Walpole, he certainly enjoyed shocking other people by spreading um, uh, I want to say not necessarily vile rumors. Let's say accurate rumors about Francis Dashwood. Uh, now, there's already a uh, drama system uh, series pitched by James Wallace that is set in this era, and it focuses more on the uh, wits and the literary scene. But you could uh, very easily use that as the uh, starting point for a more Hellfire Club uh, based uh, drama system series and uh, with a little bit of research that writes itself. Uh, what uh, sources would you point people to if they want to research uh, the Hellfire Club historically in order to uh, play uh, games that actually reference the real historical story? Well, as odd as it may sound, the best book on the Hellfire Club may still be the one by Jeffrey Ash. Uh, called The Hellfire Club's A History of Anti-Morality. And Ash is, um, in a number of ways, a, a problematic researcher. He has a lot of, um, he, he has a lot of bugaboos and hobby horses that he rides. But in this particular case, he hasn't gone too terribly far from the actual, uh, from the actual facts on the ground. You also might look at a book by Evelyn or Evelyn Lord. I don't know if it's a boy or a lady. Uh, writing the story, uh, but it's called The Hellfire Clubs, Sex, Satanism, and Secret Societies, which, uh, while it has the advantage of including more made-up stuff, um, also <laughs> um, includes more made-up stuff. So that may not be what you want. And the made-up stuff is is the uh, layer of occult legendary or just general made-up stuff? It's just general made-up stuff. I think Evelyn or Evelyn maybe sold a book uh, with that subtitle and then discovered to they're shocked that there was very little Satanism involved. And so had to say, well, it might've been the case that in that sort of way that you do when you're writing the popular history that sort of tilts over towards, um, I don't want to say conspiracy theory, but let's say, um, uh, secret society writing. Um, and then, so although Lord's book is, is not terrible by any stretch of the imagination, it is, it, it, and again, this is something I never say. It is not as rigorous as a book by Jeffrey Ash. So <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone stand in line and, and think very hard about what you've done to deserve a world where Jeffrey Ash is still written probably the best book about Hellfire Clubs. Well, uh, if you weren't so busy for Pelgrane, there's a, there's an opportunity. I still think that, um, there is a, uh, that there is a real possibility for making that a, uh, the sort of campaign frame for a Georgian 
uh, Trail of Cthulhu game where you play guys in the Hellfire Club who just got into it for the sex with prostitutes dressed as nuns, but discover that underneath the hills of West Wycombe, there are worse things waiting. Yes, and then and, they have to uh, uh, save the world in order to continue enjoying it in their uh, libertinish way. Exactly. Now, I guess in the modern era, uh, you would probably... Uh, uh, the new royalty, uh, well, it, as we've learned from the news, it might very well be current <laughs> members of the British House of Lords and uh, other... Uh, Ruling classes in general. Yes. Um, or uh, you could go with the idea that, you know, the modern equivalent of the untouchable lords are the uh, celebrities, and you might have a uh, scenario centered around a uh, secret uh, celebrity society of uh, misbehaviors, and that could... Uh, lead into a crime story revolving around uh, blackmail, or indeed, uh, again, get them into the discovery that there really are uh, supernatural forces out there, and that hell is not just a metaphor, but a problem that you have to deal with. So, uh, is, are there any other uh, uh, Hellfire Club-related uh, nuggets that uh, we haven't covered? I mean, I think that one thing you might want to think about uh, if you're looking for the modern-day Hellfire Club, the Bohemian Grove guys, you know, Dick Cheney and the giant owl, that kind yep. of thing. That's sort of like our Hellfire Club. And by that, I mean, it has just the same sort of percentage of really influential dudes in it and just the same percentage of basically subgrade fraternity pranks yeah. involved in it. Same amount the actual, of drinking, probably fewer nuns dressed up as prostitutes. Yeah, not not so many nun prostitutes, just the regular kind. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, if you're looking for a realistic modern day Hellfire Club, Bohemian Grove is is where you go to look. I think that if you're looking for a crazy magical hell, hellfire club, it should instead be like tech zillionaires, right? Because we know that celebrities are all degenerate, horrible people. That's like not even news. And they're being watched it's, constantly. It'd be like so. news if there was a secret collaboration of celebrities that all stayed married to their wives and didn't ever do drugs. That would be the weird thing. But if, you know... Uh, all of the guys who are, you know, building all of the software that runs everything in the in the world are also, you know, basically saying, well, we literally have everything money can buy. What can't money buy? Oh, right. I know. Uh, grotesque um, uh, violations of the natural order and that maybe they're doing something with biotech or with, um, uh, you know, sex with robots dressed as nuns. Maybe there's something you're talking about. And uh, to keep up the Dashwood analogy, uh, he was reading uh, the mail and uh, these guys are... If their uh, tech zillionaires are uh, hooked willingly or not into the uh, whole Five Eyes uh, data collection service, so that they they too are reading our mail and uh, uh, know where all of the secrets are buried and uh, can use that as a, a source of their power. So be careful. You know, when you're listening to this podcast, you may be listening through the ears of a giant owl or perhaps a monkey Satan. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Terminal Magics. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Make us feel like the 13-year-old boys of 1966 when they saw Diana Rigg in the Hellfire Club catsuit by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Stay tuned for details of our upcoming and imminent Patreon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.